What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I are uh, without our producer AJ today, but that's okay. So if you, those of you who are watching the uh, the video version, you're just getting this one camera angle. Yeah. So, so we'll have to get a couple comments about how you guys should change the camera angle. We had to. Uh, can't we, today. We had to use an extendable um, cable to push the button today <laughs> for record and, and do, do yeah. AJ's job. Yeah, it was a lot of uh, a lot of extra utensils. Yeah, I bet we could get a device to push the button for us to just you know. Or like the Bluetooth, or like a like a reliable producer. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. AJ's in school. We, we we're just teasing. <clears throat> he does more than push a button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pushes like four, yeah, at least <laughs> at least four. Yeah. So Cole, what are we doing today? Yeah, so we're doing um, where we very recently talked about IBS. Today mm-hmm. we're talking about a section of IBD specifically ulcerative colitis. Um, and it's accredited, right? It is. Do you want to tell them about that? It's accredited, uh, once again, through our friends over at freece.com. So if you are already a unlimited member, a gold member, um, or higher, you get access to any of the accredited episodes to where after you listen to the episode, you'll get a password. Um, for now, we're doing them embedded somewhere in the episode, so you have to actually listen. Um, and you'll get the password. Act, go to the FreeCE's website, put in that password, and you'll give a get a 10-question quiz that you'll have to ace and then you'll get your one hour continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses now if you're not a member definitely check out all the material on their their uh, platform freece.com has a whole bunch of really good monographs and live events and uh, all kinds of good stuff so um, definitely check them out if you haven't already. Thanks yep. to them once again. Check them out. Did, I do have a funny, uh, I don't think I even told you this, so I'll just tell, share it while everybody's listening. Uh, they asked um, me to host one of the, they had like an emergency thing come up, and uh, they asked me to like host one of those panel discussions mm-hmm. where I just had to facilitate the questions. Right. So, and I may have even done this last time as well, because we've done it the one other time. Mm-hmm. So it was short notice, but we got everything set up. Everything was going fine. They, you know, equipment was great. So there she's like, I want to play the video. And then and it didn't dawn on me. Like, I guess I just didn't hear it correctly. But it was like, once the video stops playing, you're live and everybody can see you. Right. And so okay. I'm, I'm like waiting for like the green light or something. And so I'm just probably just standing <laughs> like an idiot, just just looking at the camera. And so I see a comment pop up and she's like, good to go, Mike. And I'm like, crap. <laughs> Hey everyone! <laughs> so that I've been standing here like a weirdo. How long do you think it was? Uh, I have no, probably five seconds. But okay. in my mind, it was like that's been fourteen minutes. Well, if you're tuning in, and then the the guy just like the whole, staring the blankly. Whole image goes. <laughs> you just see Mike staring. Yeah. Hey, what's up? What are you guys doing here? It's the same look the uh, the guys would get at the other the other end of the octagon before. <laughs> yeah, you, something like that. Before you punched them in the face. Something. But yeah, it's basically uh, there was like hundreds of people on too. Well, I was like, funny. oh, they're gonna have a great off to a good start. Well, the last time we did that, there there was a technical difficulty, and we were supposed to have a moderator for the questions. Oh but yeah, yeah. And they last let us, minute, they just let us do it. We we did it, and I don't think it went very well. Yeah, it was a little shaky at the beginning. <laughs> it was uh, okay. it was last minute. I love that they have so much faith in us. I really. We, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. That now, was, uh, that was the, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah they're great. Good. Um, all right, so we're going to get into uh, IBD, specifically the cold side ulcerative colitis. Yeah, it's been years since we've talked about this. Um, this is one of those disease states where once you get past some of the first-line stuff, there are a fair amount of brand-name, kind of more expensive, relatively newer medications. So we're going to go over all that. Um, first, we're going to 
um, distinguish between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. We also did this during our Crohn's disease episode, which it's been a while since we did that. Uh, but I think it's important to distinguish as long as we're talking about ulcerative colitis. Um, both of those are under the umbrella of IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, they're diseases of chronic or remitting, relapsing intestinal inflammation. Uh, usually patients are going to have diarrhea, abdominal pain, that sort of thing. So ulcerative colitis is mucosal or it's a mucosal inflammatory condition um, that's confined to the rectum and the colon, uh, that portion of the GI tract. Crohn's disease is uh, a transmural inflammation of the GI tract that can affect any part, any part from the mouth all the way to the anus, any part of the GI tract. Um, so that's one distinguishing feature, but we'll get into to more of those. And uh, for, to kind of compare that real quick, ulcerative colitis. Um, did, did, you, did you say ulcerative colitis or just Crohn's? I, would, I, I did ulcerative colitis. Okay, never mind. Sorry. I was going to about to finish that off for you. And then I'm like, maybe you did say it. I just wasn't listening because I'm looking ahead. So it, there is a, a, a complex etiology kind of behind inflammatory bowel disease in, in general. So it, there is an immunologic component or autoimmune component. So you're going to have potentially an in, uh, inappropriate T cell response of, to intestinal flora. Uh, that results in like an overproduction of um, several inflammatory mediators, but specifically like overproduction of tumor necrosis factor alpha, uh, which is one of our main biologic targets that we go uh, that we go after for our biologic therapies. Um, and there's also overexpression of interferons um, as well as other uh, issues. So um, that's kind of like what we tend to at least in my experience, tend to think about like when I'm thinking about IBD and it's, you know, pathophysiology or etiology, but there does seem to be some other factors as well. Like there could be a potential infection factor as well as like loss of tolerance um, or altered normal flora. So it could result in like bacterial overgrowth um, and bacterial um, produced toxins that are in the GI tract can also potentially, if not start the process of inflammatory bowel, but definitely um, worsen or exacerbate. Uh, there is a genetic component to it as well. Uh, we've seen in like twin studies that there is a high twin concordance rate and uh, there have been several genetic biomarkers that have been established. So we do know that that plays a role. Uh, there's also potentially even like an environmental uh, aspect where, you know, talking about like, for example, the Western diet that tends to be uh, low in fiber, uh, much higher in sugar um, and additives, refined foods, things like that. Those are all uh, things that have been kind of associated with, at least with, you know, exacerbating or worsening the, the disease state. Nicotine. Uh, so it worsens Crohn's disease. Oddly enough, it's actually protective for ulcerative colitis. So I, that needs to be taken into account if the person is stopping and then, you know, or uh, is smoking and then we encourage smoking cessation. Their ulcerative colitis could tend to uh, have a flare up at that right. point. Doesn't mean that we're handing people nicotine gum though. If they're yeah. ulcerative colitis. Well, we'll keep it in our back pocket. <laughs> Me uh, medications can also uh, have a factor, so like NSAIDs, they can cause uh, the the disease to flare up, um, you know, many kind of medications with like diarrhea as a side effect. And then obviously there is the psychological component, you know, so, you know, stress, anxiety, depression. Um, when you look at like mental health studies that are looking in patient populations that have IBD, um, ulcerative colitis tends to really stand out with the um, psychosocial aspects and, and I guess a uh, burden on the patients. Yeah, I think, um, I think, think you can get i don't want to say this because i'm not entirely sure but sometimes on disability forms i see it mentioned oh i would really yeah ibd specifically you see uh, but i think ibd in general so um, maybe it's more for um 
considerations with learners and classrooms and for testing for like extra time if they need to extra time or yeah stuff like that but i I have seen it listed on like yeah some sort of disability forms i don't know about like work disability but maybe i mean it it can definitely be debilitating so yeah yeah very well could be um so mike mentioned some of this but i'm going to talk about some general characteristics of ulcerative colitis as well as the clinical presentation um I, i mentioned it's chronic inflammation of the rectum and the colonic mucosa. Um, There's no small intestine or transmural involvement. It's continuous lesions um, uh, and inflammation with crypt abscesses. It's not the cobblestone appearance like with Crohn's. Uh, There's no ileal involvement, fistulas. Um, It generally has exacerbations followed by a remission phase, and that's how patients continue. And so our goal is to prolong the remission phase as long as possible and prevent exacerbations. Clinical presentation, um, this is more characteristic of rectal bleeding uh, with frequent stools and um, sometimes mucus discharge from the rectum. Um, Abdominal tenderness is common. Patients may develop a fever related to it. Um, And weight loss is also common if if, uh, they're, they're newly diagnosed or even over time they can have weight loss as well. Yeah, and to kind of just give you a quick compare and contrast, so like Cole mentioned, uh, with something like fistulas or transmural involvement, you won't have that with ulcerative colitis, but you will with Crohn's. So that's kind of a big, you know, distinguishing factor. Uh, with the cobblestone appearance, that's more Crohn's. Um, you know, if you're thinking along the lines of, um, you know, the rectal involvement, that's going to be more ulcerative colitis. Typically, I mean, it can happen in Crohn's as well, but typically ulcerative colitis. Um, the ileal involvement is much more prevalent in Crohn's and then ulcerative colitis would be very rare. So it's just something that uh, cryptabscesses with ulcerative colitis right away. You know, it's very, very rare if ever seen in Crohn's. And, um, you know, just some things to keep in mind when you're, you know, evaluating a, the, the patient. I, I will say that we did our Crohn's episode not too terribly long ago. So if you haven't checked that out, um, it kind of, pairs nicely with this one uh we're assuming we haven't finished this episode yet so who knows but um, <laughs> they might not go together at all yeah not very yeah. well at all but uh, that one's up there and it's credited as well so check that one out if you haven't already um yeah i mentioned abdominal pain uh, as being a possible um uh, clinical presentation which it is but it's actually a little more characteristic of crohn's disease and you can imagine why because of the um, site of involvement mm. it might be more characteristic with with crohn's but can happen in uc Uh, There's also some more severe complications that can uh, develop from ulcerative colitis. Um, Toxic megacolon, also known as toxic colitis, is one. Mike will talk about it in a second. Um, Also colorectal carcinoma, hemorrhage, iron deficiency anemia. And then Mike talked about the significance of the psychosocial issues. That's definitely um, a factor and, and is very common with UC. So the uh, toxic megacolon, um, I was hoping Cole would take this, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, it, it, the reason why this is a, obviously a problem and you know a, a poor pro- or a potentially a bad outcome for a patient is because it can lead to perforation, um, which can then allow stool to sort of dump into the peritoneum and lead to infection and all kinds of stuff. Um, there is a, uh, a diagnostic criteria that was um, developed by Jalen uh, and all um, that may be kind of helpful as far as guiding the um, 
a history of the patient is you know suspected of having toxic megacolon or toxic colitis. So radiographic evidence of um, colonic dilation. The, the the classic finding is is more than six centimeters in the transverse colon. Um, three of the following: they either have to have a fever that is greater than 101.5 degrees Fahrenheit. They have to have tachycardia defined as greater than 120 beats per minute. Leukocytosis, um, which is greater than um, 10.5 times 10 to the 3 over uh, per microliter, and also anemia. So if they have um, three uh, or more of those, then they would meet the criteria. And also um, they have to have one of, the fo- one of the following and on top of all that. Dehydration, altered mental status, electrolyte abnormality, or hypotension. Uh, if the patient is found to have toxic megacolon, the, the initial treatment would be to stop narcotics, um, antidiarrheals, and anticholinergics because that can obviously induce constipation, and we want to make sure that we're not um, worsening this this situation. Um, we want to replace fluids. Uh, typically, they'll use IV steroids, um, a lot of times at a high dose, empiric-covered antibiotics um, if, if warranted, and then um, making sure, obviously, you're consulting GI at this point. You probably have them involved. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I'll leave at that. Just know that that could be a potential um, complication if yeah. not looked out for. Pretty significant, too. Um, okay, so we also want to be able to classify the severity of UC, and this will be important uh, in terms of guiding therapy. So we'll kind of go over that as we go through the medications. Um, before I talk about how to distinguish between what is what mild means, what severe means, what fulminant means, um, there are a couple of uh, disease severity scoring systems. One is the True Love and Wits criteria. Another is the Mayo score for UC. Um, they take into account various things. The True Love and Wits looks at the number of stools a patient's having per day, whether there's blood involved, do they have a fever, um, what are some of their vital signs like, uh, their urethrocyte sedimentation rate. So look at these things to kind of determine what the severity is. The Mayo score for UC will look at their stool pattern, um, most severe rectal bleeding of the day. So it could be none, but it also kind of stratifies how much blood they had in their stool. It also looks at endoscopic findings as well as physician global assessment. Um, this is this is reminds me of something um, at my current practice because we have people who work with the GI medications, some of these specifically. Um, and I always hear them on the phone asking people about their poop, you know, like how many stools they're having per day and like what it looks like if there's blood, stuff like that. Um, I don't think they're doing these specific scores. It's a different quality of life mm-hmm. um, questionnaire kind of thing. Um, but that's what it reminded me of. Hearing oh. them ask people about that. You, and while you're sitting there listening, you go, man, I'm glad I do neurology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I like. Uh, I, mean, I, I like, talk about poop a lot, so yeah, no. I might be very comfortable with them. There you go. Um, I like that the that scoring system you just went over was the the first one anyway was the true love and wits. I was like true love. That's going to be my new podcast alias name. I know. What if that was your last name? My stage name, if you will, Mike True Love. You better be real nice if that's your <laughs> if that's your uh, last name. Turns out he's a jerk. Yeah, total jerk. <laughs> like man, this guy is not loving not loving at all. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so just to kind of break it down in very simple terms, um, classification of ulcerative colitis, if if we're talking mild, uh, fewer than four stools per day, uh, and this goes more to that true love and wits criteria, but fewer than four stools per day with or without blood, um, with no systemic disturbance and a normal erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR. 
Um, moderate ulcerative colitis would be more than four stools per day, but with minimal systemic disturbance. Severe is more than six stools per day with blood, with evidence of systemic disturbance as shown by fever, tachycardia, anemia, etc. Um, fulminant ulcerative colitis is more than 10 bowel movements uh, per day with continuous bleeding, toxicity, abdominal tenderness, requirement for transfusion, and colonic dilation. Terrible. Yeah, that, that's going to be obviously more of a medical emergency situation where yeah. they're probably getting some IV treatments. Yes. So, yeah, definitely no no good. Mm, I was about to give an anecdote, but I've decided not to, and I think that's... Is it one that... Did you, you had to pause, huh? Yeah, I think that's big of me to not give... <laughs> that is good. You can imagine what it was probably about. I, yeah, especially if it's given... If you're having a pause, tell me later, and I'll see if I'll say yeah, it. We're going to move on. Um, <laughs> okay, you want to talk about the meds? Sure. So, um, the first class of medications uh, are the amino salicylates. Uh, there's a number of them. Um, we probably talked about them for various different reasons. Um, maybe Crohn's? I think, uh, I think we had mentioned it in Crohn's, just how they're not really used anymore. Not really, but right. they're not really. Yeah. We, I think we also talked about it in, in like rheumatoid, just to yes, mention that you that's could. that's what I'm thinking. Just, of. Just one of the DMARDs. But anyways. Um, but sulfasalazine uh, is one. So, the first one we'll talk about. It contains a sulfonamide moiety, sulfapyridine. Um, and mesalamine, which is uh, 5-ASA, 5-aminosalicylic acid. Uh, these drugs are cleaved by gut bacteria in the colon to sulfapyridine. They're absorbed and excreted in the urine. And mesalamine, which mostly remains in the colon, which is the site of action of, of UC. Um, their mechanism includes scavenging free radicals, inhibiting leukocyte motility, um, interfering with TNF-alpha, um, affecting growth factor B and nuclear factor kappa B. You don't say kappa beta, beta, right? Beta, yeah. You just say kappa beta? And mm -hmm. you do growth growth factor. factor beta. Okay, growth factor beta. I like B. That's cool. Yeah. I, I th I, you shortened it. It's yeah. slang. Yeah. I don't know. I, kappa B, I, you know, it's just, I don't know, whatever. We'll go with kappa beta. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like... Um, there we go. We're going to get another comment. I know. They don't even know what they're talking about. That sounds they like, don't know how to pronounce words. That sounds like Greek life. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we weren't involved with that. Go figure. Kappa beta. Yeah. I know. I doubt it exists. Um, suppressing IL-1 production and in, inhibiting leukotriene and prostaglandin production. So all of that is to decrease inflammation, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you can't use it if there's a sulfa or salicylate allergy or if you have a GI obstruction. Um, it can also cause some um, uh, SJS. So it, it's um, known for uh, the possibility of SJS. So you want to be cautious there. Also, don't use it in hepatic failure or pulmonary fibrosis. There are some labs to monitor with sulfasalazine, um, CBC, LFTs. Uh, generally, the liver function tests are recommended at baseline every other week for the first three months, and then monthly for three months, and then every three months after that. And I highly doubt that that is regularly <laughs> right. followed in, in, in that uh, order. And, and this is, I do like that the, from a mechanism standpoint, you have the sulfapyridine getting absorbed, um, you know, which for systemic absorption, which is why we use sulfasalazine for like a rheumatoid arthritis type situation and, you know, patients who other stuff's not warranted. But uh, then the mesalamine component that stays in the colon is what we are actually banking on uh, for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. So then we, they were kind of like, let's just bypass all that and just make mesalamine, and that way you're getting way less systemic absorption, which is probably why you don't really see these all that often anymore. Um, but definitely uh, sulfasalazine still out there. You will still potentially run into it. I'm sure some of you have seen patients on it or put patients on it. Um, just to mention a couple of adverse effects for sulfasalazine specifically, um, 
that are more common than the more severe ones that Cole had mentioned, but headache, rash, um, dyspepsia, folate deficiency have all been reported with sulfasalazine. Uh, also using caution in pregnancy um, due to lack of data and uh, it can cause a yellow-orange coloration of the skin and urine. So also giving patients a heads up about that, um, especially from a urine standpoint, they've already been dealing with like rectal bleeding and things yeah. like that. The last thing they want to see is an orange, you know, which could be confused for bleeding Blood, um, yeah. Yeah, in their urine. That's going to cause a, a stir, I imagine. Um, but like I mentioned, there's also mesalamine uh, products that are available so that you're not having to rely on the the gut bacteria to, to break apart the, the sulfasalazine into two different components. Uh, mesalamine enemas uh, are available, uh, which are going to be more for proctosigmoiditis. Um, so, in, you know, the ulcerative colitis that's, that's kind of in that area, more towards the end of the GI tract. And then for someone who has ulcerative colitis confined to the rectum, uh, proctitis, there's basically a suppository form of mesalamine. And then there is mesalamine ER uh, that is a oral um, option that is released uh, in the duodenum um, to the ileum uh, with up to 59% of the drug passing into the colon. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other mesalamine oral formulations that have gone on from there. So, for example, they have um, Acicol HD, which is it's an extended-release mesalamine, so it's going to use this pH-dependent coating, and um, it releases in response to intestinal pH. So it's actually designed to release when it reaches a certain pH, which is further along the GI tract. Um, mesalamine ER capsules under the brand name Lialda um, also uses a pH-dependent coating, and um, it releases at a pH of 7, and so it releases the drug. Uh, evenly throughout the colon, allowing for once-daily dosing. So that's convenient. And then um, there's an, one other once-daily dosing option that is um, a presio, which is an enteric-coated mesalamine granules that is um, it's in a polymer matrix that allows for the delayed, um, delayed delivery mechanism to the colon. And I think, uh, we'll t- Cole, do you want to go through a couple of other formulations first? Yeah, I will. But going, we back, talk about the- going back to the Kappa Beta thing, um, <laughs> I like how you just presumed that I wasn't in a fraternity. Do I seem like I'm just not cool enough to have been in a fraternity? Uh, dude, I, I was nowhere near a fraternity. So if you're not, <laughs> there's nothing to do the cool thing. It has to do with a, I just can't see you joining a fraternity. <laughs> No, I didn't. Yeah, no, I wasn't either. Do I I look like a guy who's like, I have to follow all the rules and we have to be, yes, yes, brother. Yeah. (laughs) No, no thanks. No, yeah, yeah. I'd have been kicked out day one. I know. Because what they have to, like, they, like, tell you what to do your first year. Yeah. Got to do whatever they say. I guess. I don't know about first year, but definitely during, like, um, whatever they call it. I don't know. Pledging or whatever. Pledging, yeah. I'm like, nah, I'm good. You wouldn't really gone for that, right? Not, Not even for one second. I was just studying. I remember, I remember watching, I was walking to my dorm one time as a freshman and watching all of these, because they had this big, like they call the reflection pond, turns out it's like four inches deep, <laughs> but um, I, I remember watching all of these people, this was like midnight, these people come running through and just like running through the water, that was like part of their initiation, first of all. Get better ideas. Second, <laughs> second of all, I'm just watching these people. And I'm like, you, you're idiots. Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. So, no offense to you, if you're in a, my, my, even my wife did the sorority thing. I'm yeah. just, I can't, can't yeah. do it. Couldn't back it up. wasn't really my speed. Nah, but I was also like, I was like very antisocial. Yeah. I just studied. Like I was every day. It was just how much am I going to study today? That's all yeah. I did. I just, yeah, not my thing. Anyways. Anyways. Um, so, I, I didn't touch on the adverse effects for all the different yeah. mesalamine stuff. So with, you want to cover that? With all mesalamine formulations, you want to use caution in patients with renal or hepatic impairment. So be aware of that. And any of them can cause hypersensitivity reactions. Um, 
resulting in myocarditis, pericarditis, organ damage. Um, general adverse effects, they can cause abdominal pain, nausea, headache, flatulence, belching, maybe some symptoms that are similar to what they've been dealing with. Um, so warn patients that um, that, that can't happen, uh, but the hope is to, to that those might be transient and that you can appropriately treat what they've primarily been dealing with. Um, but you want to monitor the renal function and CBC going forward, kind of like we had mentioned before. There's a couple of others. Um, Balsalazide, branded as um, Giazzo. Nice. Tablets um, and colazole capsules. Giazzo, interestingly, is only approved in males, um, and it can cause headache, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, there's also Olsalazine, uh, Depentum. Uh, just a couple things with this. You want to take it with food, and it can also cause abdominal pain or diarrhea. So a couple of other immunosalicylates that are available. The perfect side effects for someone dealing with IBD already. I know. I know. So there is a uh, a really um, useful if you for those of you who still have like access to Depira pharmacotherapy, um, there is a very useful uh, little diagram that they have in the IBD section where they they kind of have a, a graph form showing uh, across the x-axis showing the site of action um, on the y-axis the product itself. So, for instance, the suppository they show that it kind of obviously stays local to the rectum, whereas the enema um, or a, the steroid enema, which we haven't even got to yet, is more going to be distal colon, just so just past the rectum. The Aprizio, the Lialda, um, the two other um, less utilized medications that Cole had just mentioned, um, those are all going to be proximal colon up to almost the terminal ilium. Uh, and they're, So they're, again, going to be more designed for a ulcerative colitis type situation. Now, Asacol and Pentassa are the other two. Um, Pentassa you know, is the one that actually has delivery across the entire GI tract, almost from the ilium, the jejunum as well. Um, Asacol is past the terminal ilium, almost to the ilium, but those are going to be more, I guess, initially designed for Crohn's, um, although these are not really used in Crohn's anymore just for lack of efficacy and just better products being available. But um, I really like this chart because it's kind of like the a good breakdown. And when you see all these different mesalamine products, it really lays it out in a visual way to see why there are so many and how you can kind of utilize that. Yeah, helps it make sense. But it's still not the best row. Right. Um, so those are the aminosalicylates. Then we have corticosteroids, another uh, grouping of drugs that are commonly used in UC. Have we ever talked about those before? I'm just corticosteroids? I'm just kidding. <laughs> ever? Yeah. You're looking at me like, what are you I'm talking like, about? Like, I guess this is a joke. Um, yeah, so just to touch on them again. Um, of course, they're going to modulate the immune system. They're going to inhibit production of cytokines and those inflammatory mediators. Um and decrease similar things really to the to the immunosalicylates, leukotriene production, prostaglandin, superoxide production to decrease inflammation. Um, so we have some unique products uh, that are used here. Um, uh, Eucerus is a brand name for the bedesonide with MMX uh, technology, which um, is used for extensive disease. Did you want to talk about the MMX technology a little bit? Um, I don't really have much on it. That just has to just do with when, it, where it's released, when it's right? released. Yeah. Cause it's not to be confused with the other form of budesonide that's designed for Crohn's. Right. So this is specifically to, um, for it to be released further in the GI tract where you see past is. like the terminal ileum right. going towards the you know, colon. It's a nine milligram ER tablet only for UC cause it releases in the colon and it's dosed once a day, um, for eight weeks for active disease. Um, there's also budesonide rectal foam, which is the eucerous foam. 
It's used in proctosigmoiditis and proctitis. It's not as effective as mesalamine. Mm. Um, as far as other steroids, prednisone in doses of 40 to 60 milligrams per day can be used in patients with moderate extensive disease um, who have not responded well to um, the oral immunosalicylates or require more rapid control of symptoms to get to remission. Um, and, yeah, you're going to talk about some adverse effects, but I have an anecdote. Tell me some of the anecdote first. I was just going to say, we all know that... Um, uh, osteoporosis or you know bone depletion over time can be a result of long-term corticosteroids mm-hmm. use. So I've been working more with osteoporosis recently. Um, we have three drugs, Prolia, um, Timlos, and Forteo that we work with in osteoporosis. And um, I've already seen a couple of instances of someone in like their late 50s, early 60s, who most of those uh, are started like post-fracture or whatever, um, who've had a fracture that they associated with osteoporosis from long-term corticosteroid use Hmm. so it's interesting to see it on the back end because it definitely can have negative results and of course those fractures depending on what it is can be very debilitating to an older individual yeah absolutely yeah i'm not gonna lie though i did definitely assumed your anecdote was gonna be more comedic than that i was (laughs) like this isn't funny at all more more poop related (laughs) that sounds that sounds horrible for that person (laughs) yeah Uh, i should specify serious or funny yeah yeah yeah, yeah, please that way i don't i don't feel bad about myself i will do that next time because i immediately was like oh man i'll write i'll write that down don't laugh (laughs) So yeah, adverse. <laughs> give me a warning ahead of time. This is not supposed to be funny. So adverse effects that are you know very common with corticosteroids, especially with daily use for a period of time. You know, increased appetite and eventually increased weight gain as well, potentially. Which if they're having weight loss and stuff, maybe that can be beneficial. But overall, not a good reason to be gaining weight. Um, emotional instability because it does have like a stimulant like effect to it for a lot of people. Um, it can induce insomnia in some patients. Um, GI upset, obviously, but then like Cole said, the long-term complications, including osteoporosis, like he was talking about, can also lead to hypertension, hyperglycemia. Um, for any of you who have worked with diabetic patients that are um, on long-term steroids, it's really difficult to keep their blood sugar managed. It also, because of their immunosuppression properties, you're going to have potentially, you know, reduced um, immuno. So, or, uh, your immune system is going to be reduced, and you're going to have impaired wound healing, is what I was trying to say. Um, adrenal suppression overall, and then uh, potentially even sodium retention because of the edema. So lots of reasons to not be on these long term. Right. Yeah, I will say that it's a, so I have no, I have an anecdote now. Mine's funny. You're allowed to laugh because it's about me. <laughs> I took a, I took a prednisone for when I hurt my shoulder, and it was just super inflamed and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. I had taken, and this is when I already hadn't been working out a lot because my shoulder had been bothering me and, you know, I was already putting on more weight than I liked. I took prednisone, probably too high of a dose. I put myself on it. (laughs) Too high of a dose just because I was like, it felt way, way better. The inflammation was going down, but I was retaining so much water. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys that I work with, one of my buddies, Alex, that's been on the show as a PA, uh, he had FaceTimed me about something and... So I'm talking to him, and I had just gotten out of the pool in you know, my backyard. I'm talking to him for a minute, and, like, the angle of, like, the camera, like, my phone, and, like, I just look like I'm 300 pounds. <laughs> so he took a screenshot, of course, as he – I would have done the same thing. And just – it's been shared now in our friend group so many times. <laughs> and now everyone refers to that picture as prednisone Mike. And I'm like, man, you, that's not cool. <laughs> But See, it, yeah, it was bad. You would think if somebody had a picture of you and labeled it, which of course is prednisone, Mike, but steroid, Mike, it would mean something different than you looking. No, like there was no much heavier than you are. There was no uh, no confusing this look. <laughs> this was not an anabolic look. Trust me, I saw it and I was like, God, that's rough. Yeah, 
that. Fun, anyway. Funny anecdote. I appreciate that you presumed that my anecdote would be funny, though, because usually I figure they're pretty hit or miss. So no, thanks for they, that. They make me laugh, so no. whatever. Good, good. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about some treatment guidance uh, related to the guidelines as far as when you start what and what might be better than what um, and in what type of disease process. So an extensive disease um, standard low-dose mesalamine um, is considered first line, 2 to 3 grams per day, or diazobonded 5-amino salicylate. And this is considered better than low-dose mesalamine, sulfasalazine, budesonide MMX, or no treatment at all. Once daily dosing is preferred over multiple times per day, uh, for instance, Mike mentioned Lialda or Aprizo, those are both once daily. Um, in a different situation, if you have extensive or left-sided disease, consider adding rectal mesalamine um, to the oral 5-amino salicylate. And then if it is refractory to oral mesalamine and rectal 5-amino salicylate, regardless of what the disease extent is, add either oral prednisone or budesonide MMX. And then if the ulcerative colitis is, you know, um, is confined more to the, the rectum and you know the and the, the distal colon ulcerative uh, proctosigmatitis basically they would recommend mesalamine enemas uh, first line and if that is not um, an option oral mesalamine would be a good option as well um, mesalamine enemas have been compared to rectal corticosteroids and um, the mesalamine enemas were superior as far as efficacy um, if it's proctitis, so confined just to the rectum, uh, mesalamine suppositories would be what is recommended. And um, oral mesalamine could be potentially used, but it is going to be less effective technically than the suppository. Because it's all about site of, you know, release of the medication and, and uh, site of action. Uh, and then the mesalamine suppositories have been also compared to rectal corticosteroids and um, found superior as well to that. Um, if a patient is intolerant of or has um, refractory symptoms to rectal mesalamine, then at that point consider rectal corticosteroids as a, a potential add-on option or replacement, um, especially if they have like, you know, no, um, if they're intolerant, obviously, but if they have no response to mesalamine, then maybe try the steroid next. Um, oral mesalamine or oral corticosteroids uh, can also be considered if rectal corticosteroids and rectal mesalamine are both off the table or have been tried. Right. But try to avoid the, especially the systemic corticosteroids. If possible. Yeah. Okay. Do you like my little uh, flow chart? I made yeah, this. There was I made it all by myself. That's why it's just black and white. Very, it's very <laughs> no black color. And, black and white with boxes and arrows. And arrows. Very just good. the way I like it. Basically, very simple. Basically summing up what we just went over. Yeah. For mild to moderate, you see. Yeah. Um, okay. So for moderate to severe, you see, um, we can consider... An additional or a different agent, um, immunosuppressive agents like theopurines, azathioprine uh, to be specific. So um, that is an option. Also, mercaptopurine. With azathioprine, it does have a boxed warning for chronic immunosuppression, increased risk of malignancy in patients with IBD. So be aware of that and make sure the patients understand the risks. Um, other things to be aware of, it can cause hematologic toxicities, patients with a genetic deficiency of theopurine methyltransferase, um, specifically, um, theopurine methyltransferase TPMT testing, theopurine methyltransferase testing should be considered before initial use um, of either azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine. Um, it can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, not great in this instance, but also rash, and it can increase liver function tests as well. Um, 
Captopurine is very similar, but it does not have a box warning for chronic immunosuppression, and it has to be taken on an empty stomach. Both have been used long-term in UC, but also Crohn's as well. I'm into, uh, that's, I was going to, today when I was at the clinic, I was going to put in like an order area to see if I could pull up the thiopurine methyltransferase test to see if it was just something that was like easily available and see if it had those multiple money signs next mm-hmm. to it. Cause I wonder how often that's actually yeah. drawn. Oh, yeah. I feel like probably not. I mean, probably maybe with like rheumatoid folks and stuff, but yeah, I, I mean, it may be if it can be included in, yeah. you know, another panel they're getting, but. Um, I haven't seen them order it. Not that I'm paying much attention, but I'd be surprised if they're ordering it standardly for every patient. It's it's like the allopurinol testing, like yeah. you can do the HLA, whatever that allele is. I can't remember off the top of my head, but five, um, a, it's like five seven zero one or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but uh, I just made those those four numbers up. Is that the is that the last four of your social? Too, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too lazy to look in Lexicon. But uh, that's something I feel like a lot of people don't draw. But then I have I haven't even seen a hypersensitivity reaction to that. And I was like, huh, yeah. well maybe it should be drawn more often than we think. Yeah, that's why somebody recommends it. Somebody recommends somebody it. Somebody smart it. does. Turns out Lexicon was right. <laughs> who, who would have ever thunk? Um, but yeah, so those are immunosuppressive agents that Cole mentioned. The, the cyapurines very widely used and. Definitely uh, better than some of the other options, potentially, but also not as good as our biologics that we have. So remember, we talked about TNF-alpha being potential target of therapy. Um, so TNF-alpha is going to induce pro-inflammatory cytokines, interleukins. Um, it's going to enhance leukocyte migration. Um, it's going to activate neutrophils and eosinophils for migration. Uh, it's going to induce uh, acute phase reactants, tissue-degrading enzymes. So a lot of damage uh resulting from the release and in, in, um, increased activity of TNF-alpha. Now, if we give an antagonist to TNF-alpha, obviously we're going to suppress some of those things, which is good for our patients. Mm-hmm. So TNF-alpha inhibitors are probably one of the main, I get our first-line biologics, I feel like, in a lot of uh, patients, yeah. um, especially if you're not in a specialized area. I know we used uh, a lot of these for more severe cases of ulcerative colitis at my last clinic. Um there are three main options that are available uh, and FDA-approved for ulcerative colitis. Uh, infliximab, or Remicade. Um, remember, that's the IV infusion formulation of uh, TNF-alpha. Uh, it, it does have the risk of infusion reactions, um, so sometimes patients will be pre-medicated before they get their infusion. Um, but it is oftentimes looked at as kind of like the more the most effective uh, TNF-alpha antagonist um, on the market uh, compared to some of the others. Adalutumab or Humira is um, probably the second that would be widely used. It, it is a sub-Q injector um, that you can, uh, the patient can self-administer. And then Symponi, Golimumab is uh, another one that I feel like the the guidelines didn't really talk much about and um, you just don't really see this one as often, at least in my experience. Uh, do you ever see this one in specialty? As, we do, but not as much as Humira. Yeah, we definitely, we see it, but Humira is the most common. Yeah, and do you know of any nuances why they would actually go with that? I haven't I haven't looked deep enough in this, but I didn't see it mentioned in a lot of things. Not that so. I'm aware of. All of these TNF-alpha antagonists, though, do carry a box warning. Uh, so increased risk of serious infection, um, some of which could be fatal or documented to be fatal in some cases. Uh, these infections could be um, everything from TB, fungal, viral, bacterial, opportunistic, um, just overall... Uh, not a good scene if the patient is, um, you know, likely to contract some kind of uh, infection. 
prior to starting uh, one of these TNF alpha inhibitors, you you want to get a CBC, a CMP, obviously, and then also do some screening, specifically looking for TB, and then it would be good to um, do a, a Hep B, and technically you can do a Hep C treatment or a Hep C screening as well. One, if they haven't had that done ever, they're supposed to have one at least once in their adult life from 18 to 79, I believe. Um, and then it's not as much of a, it used to be like a contraindication to starting therapy. It's not anymore, especially since it's fairly easy to treat hep C. But hep B, you typically wouldn't want to jump into a TNF alpha inhibitor if, the, if they have an active flare-up. So you'd be checking a surface, hep B surface antigen to make sure they don't have an acute flare-up going on. Right. The other thing um, would be looking at comorbidities. Specifically, the big one to watch is heart failure. So if a patient has concomitant heart failure and you're thinking about a TNF alpha, maybe utilize a different option um, could worsen that situation. I tell, I tell this story every time we talk about TNF alpha, but um, it just reminds me how old I am because when I was in oh, yeah. when I was in school, twenty three. <laughs> when I was in school, I guess all these TNF alpha inhibitors were not out yet, and so it was a big point of research. And so one of our professors was uh, deeply involved in the research for for TNF alpha, and so he came and and gave a presentation on I don't know it must have been a pathophysiology lecture on something or other, um, but he had maybe ten questions on the exam that we were going to have. And you knew that if his answer mentioned TNF alpha, that was had to be it. It was it was like you knew it one hundred percent what the answer was going to be. It was going to have something to do with TNF alpha. Those are the best kind of tests. And now we have all these drugs. Yeah, look at look at that. Look at that. Because if you answer incorrectly on a test, and I remember now, there you go. Um, Thank you for your service, Cole. You were. Yeah. <laughs> um, for anybody watching, I just saluted. Yeah. Um, or listening, you mean? They're watching. They probably saw. Thanks. It's thanks, late. Yeah. It's late. It is actually late. So moving on to a different class, which um, we probably see this drug. I don't want to speak for my GI folks, but very regularly. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an anti-IL-12-23 antibody, Stellara, Ustakinumab. Um, this one's unique because it's given IV and sub-Q, and specifically in a lot of instances, it's given IV first, and then you move on to the sub-Q um, dose after that. Um, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but there are circumstances where you don't have to do the IV first, um, but just be aware that, that it is available both ways. It blocks the biological activity of IL-12 and 23. Um, it inhibits the receptors for those cytokines on T cells, natural killer cells, and antigen-presenting cells. Um, it does carry a risk for serious infections like these biologics tend to, you know, tuberculosis, invasive fungal infections, other opportunistic infections. You need a negative TB test before starting it, um, and then you need a periodic monitoring related to that. Uh, and then um, if, it, you, if they have latent TB, you have to treat that before initiating um, treatment with Stellar. I'll tell you what, we'll pause there. You guys don't pause. We're just going to pause the, the talk and uh, give you the, the super secret password that you cannot tell anybody until yes. they listen to the episode as well. But uh, the password today for the post-activity test is colon, uh, C-O-L-O-N, capital letters. And um, like I said, it'll be freec.com's website. Uh, I'll post that link in there. But if you when you go to their homepage, go to learn, and then you'll see podcasts. Click that, and then it'll see a list of all of our episodes are accredited because there's several on there now and uh, you can filter it and do all that good stuff. Colon. So, 
You know what we should do? Well, you know how I mentioned do? what we should do just to make it more interesting mm-hmm. is a word scramble instead of giving the word. Mm. What we should do is still give the word in the middle of the episode, but it's probably easy to forget, especially if somebody's driving and they can't right. write it down. So then we put the word scramble in the show notes, and so at least people who've listened to it would probably be able to figure it out based on the word scramble. And then if you haven't listened to <laughs> and it... And that's not even the right word anyway, so you've wasted all that time. And then if you haven't listened to it, but you can figure out the word scramble, then good on you you can yeah. take the test that's we should ask permission they're gonna yeah i'm sure that'll <laughs> yeah. i'm sure that'll go over well free um, gonna be like hey guys we had a thought <laughs> we had a great it's not idea a, it's not a good one but <laughs> it's it's, an, it's we're an idea. really thinking about doing it <laughs> yeah, could you imagine how easy that would be to unscramble the word colon though like I mean, about you they'd look at it and go o-c-o-l i don't know I mean, I guess if you It'll put be it, cool, sure. If you put it in context, cool without an then, then yes, it would be pretty. Like, well, this is obviously colon. <laughs> I don't have to listen to the episode. But I like, suppose. Crap. Then we'll just have to keep it a secret that it's a word scramble. But I guess they would figure that out later for or future I'll, episodes. Or I'll receive a hundred <laughs> emails from people asking how in the world they asked. <laughs> right. I entered no lock into the into the oh, password. Man. It didn't work. That would be funny. Not for All me, right. but it would be funny. Never mind. Moving on. All right, so Instagram receptor antagonist, um, also called Tivio, um, get another IV formulation. It is approved for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, there is kind of a stipulation where if the patient is started on this medication and they're not seeing any sort of benefit after the 14-week uh, mark, uh, most likely they're not going to have any additional benefit past that point. So at that point, if there's no benefit, just kind of discontinue and change uh change routes. Um, if the, the patient is, you know, thinking about warnings, you know, complications, serious side effects, um, infusion reactions, because it is an IV formulation, um, can, can occur, and then infection risk and uh, liver injury potentially as well as so increasing your LFTs. But um, infection risk is still present in this one. Um, all vaccines should be uh, up to date. And really, this kind of applies for all of these, but all vaccines should be up to date before starting therapy, um, especially live vaccines, because you're not really supposed to do live vaccines with any kind of immunosuppressive type agent. Uh, adverse effects that are fairly common, um, not so serious, would be the headache, which I feel like is you can just put that for every medication on the planet, pretty much. Um, nasopharyngitis and um, arthralgia as, as well. Uh, like I said, monitoring LFTs, um, monitoring and, and being on the lookout for neurological symptoms, and then routine TB screening before uh, starting and then periodically if necessary. Sure. Um, we have another drug, which is a my uh, favorite Janus kinase inhibitor. We've Just talked kidding. about before for other conditions, but Celljans, tofacitinib, um, oral, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it Very stimulates cheap. stimulates immune cell function, but it has a box warning similar to the others for TB, fungal, viral, bacterial infections. Um, also potentially increases risks of lymphoma. Um, it has a warning for GI perforation. Um, not ideal in this situation, but uh, something to be aware of. can also increase LFTs, and it um, has not been studied in poor renal function, specifically less than 40 milliliters per minute, um, so be aware of that. Also avoid live vaccines with it, and um, it has some more common adverse effects associated, um, increasing risk for upper respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections, um, and then the headache, diarrhea. Also blood pressure. It can increase blood pressure and also increase lipids as well. Um, One thing I do want to add to that, to the box warning, um, and I think we talked about this when we were talking about... um, 
maybe atopic dermatitis possibly, but there's actually a couple others that have been recently added as well. So the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, um, so it's from the RA studies, but it tends to be more prevalent in patients or at least higher risk in patients who are 50 or older, um, have one or more cardiovascular risk factors, um, and they're being treated with, uh, Zelgen's either five milligrams twice a day or ten milligrams twice a day. Um, and they had a higher uh, rate of major adverse cardiovascular events, um, including MI, stroke, cardiovascular death. Um, when you compare those two strengths versus TNF alpha inhibitors, that risk went up. Um, also, risk for thrombosis, including pulmonary embolism and DVT, arterial thrombos- thrombosis, and uh, all of those have been reported in patients using Zelgen's. Again, they're from the RA studies and usually more prevalent in 50 and over uh, patient population, but definitely not to be taken lightly. And at least patients should be aware, and especially if they have concomitant cardiovascular disease. Yeah, not great. Fortunately, no. these patients in UC are not necessarily um, elderly. They no. could be, you know, they could be young or middle aged. Yeah, and I, did you, uh, you you went over some of the adverse effects, but you want to finish up with yeah, um, since we're starting it. So because it can increase lipids monitor lipids at baseline and then they say four to eight weeks later and then every three months after that seems pretty um frequent um so just be aware of that also cbc um, and then get lfts at baseline and periodically interestingly patients of asian descent descent have an increased frequency of adverse effects with zelgans um this is a twice a day tablet it's five milligrams twice a day but is available as an xr 11 milligram tablet that's only once a day um, if a patient is switching between them, start the XR the day following the last dose of five milligrams and then continue from there. That's all you need to do. does have side effects with um, um, CYP3A4 medications because it's a strong CYP3A4 inducer. Um, you do have to dose adjust if uh, a patient is taking uh, CYP3A4 inhibitors. You would only give five milligrams once a day. Also, similarly, uh, do that with strong CYP2C19 inhibitors. And as with a lot of these biologics, it's pretty expensive. Um, So consider that it it is uh, pricey and you need insurance coverage or a uh, a patient assistance program to afford it in most cases. I'm assuming this means per tablet. I was just looking at the cost associated with it. So five milligram tablets, and it says per each. I'm assuming that means per tablet is $110. Yeah. Twice a day. It's like, oof. 200 bucks a month, or 200 $100 a bucks day. a day, then um, 2000 yeah. 6000 a month. Yeah, it's pretty significant. Dude, wait, care the one. Yeah, that's about 6000 <laughs> Nailed it. Dude, that's so much money. It's crazy. Yeah. The uh, and You mentioned the interactions, but it's a moderate SIP 3A4 inhibitors where you got to only use 5 milligrams or more, or, or less, rather. So it, that's, you know, a fairly common drug-drug interaction to run into. Yeah, so. yeah. Definitely uh, be aware of that. Uh, the other one that can be used, usually saved more for very severe cases, fulminant UC, you know, maybe just to get the inflammation under control and then de-escalate. But cyclosporin can potentially be an option as well for short-term benefit, um, especially in, the, like I said, in the acute severe ulcerative colitis um, situation. If you're trying to avoid colectomy in patients that are failing corticosteroids, um, cyclosporin can be given to kind of get that inflammation under under control. Um, cyclosporin does uh, have a risk for nephrotoxicity, neurotoxicity, so being aware of that and uh, making sure that um, those things are addressed if, if they start to occur. But, uh, yeah, cyclosporin, you may run into that, but it's more so going to be inpatient. Right. Um, so we did want to talk a little bit about the American gastro 
interological association guidelines from 2020. Um, I don't believe they have an update. So the, there's, there's several, there's been a couple since then, but there are European or world guidelines. Um, I left the, the U S guidelines in there, but there have been several of them. In fact, there's a good summary that was just updated in March 8th, 2023 on, um, Medscape called ulcerative colitis guidelines. And they basically just go through each of them, all of them and, and kind of list out some of their nuances, but nice. Yeah. Um, so it gives some guidance um, depending on what you're trying to do. So are you trying to achieve um, induction? Are you going for, um, are they in remission? Are you doing induction, then remission? So yeah, for induction the, in outpatients with moderate to severe UC who are naive to any biologic agent, they suggest using infliximab or betalizumab rather than adalimumab for induction of remission. Um Patients, particularly those with less severe disease who place higher value on um, convenience of like self-administering a medication um, and maybe aren't as concerned with the relative efficacy of the medications, it would be reasonable to do Humira adalimumab as an alternative because they are, of course, easier than infliximab or betalizumab from a patient administration standpoint. I feel like there's like some underlying shade being thrown there. But it's like, I mean, if you have a patient who's just like, really puts a lot of value in convenience. Just, they don't really care if it works or not. <laughs> then like give them Humira. Right. I don't care if it works. Well, I mean, I, I can see it because having to go, having to go in for an Oh yeah. I'd be, I would honestly probably versus having Humira ship to your house or picked up from a pharmacy. If you were achieving what you would consider an adequate benefit from it, it's yeah. probably more convenient. For sure. Um, then also for induction in adult outpatients who have previously had infliximab, um, particularly those with primary non-response to infliximab, they suggest using ustekinumab in this case or tofacitinib, Zoljans, rather than vedolizumab or adalimumab for induction of remission. So basically, we previously we talked about somebody who hasn't been on a biologic. Now we're talking about someone who's already taken infliximab, which might have been the first line previously. Yeah. Um, for induction or remission in outpatients, they suggest combining a TNF-alpha inhibitor, vedolizumab or ustekinumab with the theopurines that we talked about before, or methotrexate rather than a biologic monotherapy by itself. Um, but they do mention don't do a combination with Zeljans yeah. specifically. And uh, just some other guidelines that they... Um that they do recommend, so induction therapy again. So in adult outpatients, um, the AGA does suggest uh, using a biologic as monotherapy um, or Zelgen's um, monotherapy rather than a thiopurine as monotherapy for induction. So if the patient's unwilling to do a combo, um, then basically push them towards the biologic because there's just much better data. Also to notice that it says su- suggest as opposed to like fully recommend um, because of the level of evidence and all that. So it's not saying that if, if a patient were to get a thiopurine, if they had some kind of contraindication to a biologic or the more advanced therapies, they don't have insurance and you're helping out at like a free clinic or something. It's not like the thiopurines won't do anything. It's just less likely to put them into remission. Um, just, thought I'd throw that out there. And then uh, they also mentioned that um, in induction, in adults, uh, adult outpatients with active, moderate to severe UC, um, they suggest against using thiopurine monotherapy for induction. So again, suggesting against it because there's not good data to show that support, um, not necessarily that it's you know, ruining, you know, people's GI tracts or anything like that. But it's just uh, because 
they're a guideline. They have to only suggest recommendations that have solid data. Right. And so kind of with that in mind, for a patient who's in remission now, um, so the, the general thinking is, well, we've got them induced, and now we're going to a remission phase. Maybe we should... Should we continue what they're on, which might be kind of an intense therapy? Should we de-escalate to one of these other things? Um, they actually don't really make a recommendation. They say it. They don't. They don't say in favor or against um, continuing a biologic monotherapy or Zeljans versus de-escalating to a theopurine monotherapy for the maintenance of remission. Um, there is one small French study that has a very low quality of evidence. Uh, like 82 patients, not very many, um, suggesting continuing infliximab and azathioprine, a combo therapy specifically, was superior to de-escalating to just infliximab monotherapy. So something to think about. Um, they do say that if a patient has achieved remission, they suggest continuing a thiopurine monotherapy versus taking them off therapy completely. So as you, I, I think that's a bit apparent, but um, they suggest that. One thing I did mean, uh, I mean to mention as well is for induction therapy, they do recommend against methotrexate as monotherapy, um, which the IM or sub-Q methotrexate could be potentially used if some of the first-line options are not available for Crohn's, then they may go that route. But in ulcerative colitis, they do not recommend induction therapy with uh, methotrexate for monotherapy or remission, really, um, with monotherapy methotrexate. Yeah. So just want to make sure I see that clearly. Um, then they say that if a patient is hospitalized, um, you know, with, you know, very severe ulcerative colitis that they do recommend, um, using intravenous, uh, methylprednisolone, um, for dose, with a dose equivalent of 40 to 60 milligrams per day of, you know, prednisone dose equivalent. Um, and if the patient is having severe symptoms refractory to IV steroids, then, um, they suggest using either infliximab or cyclosporin. Um, infliximab is sometimes given at higher doses in hospitalized patients, um, but again, cyclosporin could be another option, um, given IV. Uh, once the patient is discharged, obviously treatment is going to be based on whatever they've tried in the past versus, uh, you know, their particular situation and um, severity. And so it's usually just transition to whatever uh, they're going to be on to complete their induction process. Yep. So uh, let's kind of recap real quick. Um, so if it is moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, if it's an outpatient setting, they're biologically naive, first line therapy that they would recommend would be infliximab. Um, if that's not an option, then um, vitalizumab or intivio would be the next line, plus, so either of those options, plus thiopurine, um, so azathioprine or mecaptopurine. Um, adalutumab, again, would be another potential option, but this is just based on the, this is simplifying even their recommendations further, so those would be the ideal situations to use one of those. Infliximab probably would be the best option. Um, if it's an outpatient uh situation where you're treating a patient who has already used infliximab in the past and they're having refractory symptoms as opposed to transitioning to intivia or adalidumab, they say to jump right to ustekinumab um, plus thiopurine or zeljans, but preferably the ustekinumab. And if it's a hospitalized patient, IV, methylprednisolone, uh, if that's not enough, then infliximab or cyclosporin. Um, so that's all induction therapy options. If they are in remission, uh, then consider either the biologic monotherapy or thiopurine monotherapy as well until we have better data that says long-term uh, therapy with combo is safe and just as effective. So something to, to think about. It's, a, again, a very quick summary, but um, 
you know, the, that's kind of the way to think about those biologics and how to pick what over the other. Right. Right. Anything else with, with this stuff? No, no. I don't, I don't know what else we could go more in depth on, but I'm sure there was something. Can, can we share our comment about the yeah, If I don't, uh, I don't no, you don't think it's funny? Yeah. I won't. Okay. I don't we got a mean comment on Reddit, so <laughs> I was going to try to share it. They were basically saying we don't go in depth enough. Mike wants to call them out. I, I was going to call their name. I just think it's <laughs> funny that they, they're like, yeah, it's just a very basic overview. Those guys, you can tell, did not have extensive training. I'm like, what the You heck? said you weren't going to share it. I don't care. I had to. Um, so I decided uh, halfway through the comment. But uh if you search hard, no, no, can't <laughs> you can find yourself. it. I know I can't. This is so funny. I was like, who takes the time to write this stuff? So if you guys want to leave nice comments, we encourage it. <laughs> so we could really use the emotional uplift right now. But I uh, hope that was helpful. Um, I definitely um, appreciate FreeCE.com. Continue to partner with us. Again, uh, use that password that we gave you earlier. Take the uh, post-activity test on FreeCE's website, and you will get your one-hour credit. Um, thank you so much to everyone listening. And, uh, you know, if we can ever do anything to improve or if you have you know, feedback that you want to give us of things to work on or that would make it more enjoyable, um, definitely let us know. We always are open to hearing that. We do want to improve the show and make it, you know, enjoyable for you all. Um, it, it's much more uh, beneficial to everyone listening if you tell us directly instead of putting it on Reddit and not to find it later. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm done. But uh, yeah, so if you guys have anything, we definitely want to hear the feedback. Also, um, you know, if you want more traditional style lectures, and I know I mentioned this a lot, but uh, we do have our Patreon option that has actual like PowerPoint slide lectures available. Yeah, it's like $3 a month, or you can do like, I think it's like $30 for the year or something. And you get access to all the presentation, all the lectures, all the PowerPoint slides. There's a ton of different disease states on there now. And um I think we uh, think we surpassed three three hundred people subscribed to it now. So nice. appreciate it to everyone who is already supporting. Um, that means a lot to us, and we definitely uh, appreciate it. So if you have any questions or comments or feedback, email us. They're in the show notes. Uh, you can reach us on social media platforms. The number in the show notes as well. You can text us on that. And until then, we'll either hear from you sooner or we'll see you in the next episode. Have a good night.